Second Kings 11. So last week in chapter 10, uh, we were talking about the new king. Anybody remember his name? Oh, Starts with the J, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerem? Jer? No. Jedediah? Jehu. I was getting. I always want to say Jeroboam, and I know it's not Jeroboam anymore. Because we reference Jeroboam every time a king and his entire house are utterly destroyed. I say your house will be like the house of Jeroboam. And this is back up. Jehu. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm helping you guys out because next week is Cahoots. Ah. So, Jehu destroyed the house of... Jeroboam? No. <laughs> Man! <laughs> Ada. Closer. Ada. Ahab. Ahab. It's one of those. Think uh, Moby Dick. Okay, gotcha. Destroys the house of, uh, of uh, Ahab when he destroys his king. <laughs> who, uh, who else does he also kill? Uh, he goes out and gets all of his kids, right? Yeah, but before that. He's, remember, um, the previous king is healing from a battle. Right. right when Jehu goes to charge in on him. And he kills him. <laughs> who else was there that Jehu also killed? It was Jezebel, right? No, that was later. The king's sons? Nope. It reason I ask is because it does affect our lesson this morning. I don't know. Let's see if anybody can find it real quick. He kills the king of... Syria. No, no, no. In the story I'm referencing, the king comes back to heal, mm -hmm. right? What king are we talking about? The king of... Israel. Israel, right. Yeah. Who else? The Baal worshippers. No. He does do that. Too, he does do that. <laughs> he does. These are all people he These kills. are all correct. Uh, he also kills the king of Judah. No. Can we not remember that? No. Let's go back and look. Second Kings 9. No, I the wrong one. He switched chapters on us. Like I said, I'm referencing it because it applies to our lesson this morning. Uh, and in verse... ...27, it says, When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way the garden house. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Gur, which is by Ilbium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. Uh, he was he was to kill him because he was associated, and we kind of covered that in that chapter. He's associated with this evil king of Israel, and so he slays him as well. You might also remember in chapter ten, where he slays the. Um, the descendants, the family of that same king, because they are friendly with the house of Ahab. So, we talked about last week, he's 
torn down the house of Ahab, he's torn down the house of Baal, things are getting better in Israel. But what we're going to talk about this week is what takes place uh, at the same time in Judah. Right? Because after he kills their king, there's sort of a, uh, a gap in the power there in Judah. And it says in chapter 11, in verse 1, And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. That is, all of those in line for the throne. The entire line of David. But, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her, hid, in the house of the Lord, six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. Yeah. I'll tell you, sometimes you read through these stories in the Bible, it sounds like an episode of Game of Thrones or something like that. It's, it gets pretty interesting. What makes this even more amazing is all of these things are real. You know, these actually happened. You know, usually you have to make up stuff this interesting, but these things actually took place. So the title of our lesson this morning is The Evil Reign of Athalia. The Evil Reign of Athalia, not reign, but like R-E-I-G-N, like a ruler. And we see, first of all, during the evil reign of Athalia is preserving that which is precious. Because in times such as these, and you get tired of hearing people say in times such as these, but in times such as these that we're talking about in our story, there is a necessity to preserve that which is precious. Right? And we see uh, in verse 4, it says, And the seventh the seventh year Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them into his house, into the house of the Lord rather, and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. And he commanded them saying, this is the thing that ye shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall be keepers of the watch of the king's house and a third part at the gate of Sur, and a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall ye keep the watch of the house, that it be not broken down. And two parts of all of you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And ye shall compass the king round about every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goeth out, and as he cometh in. And the captains over hundreds did according to all things that, Jehoi that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. And they took every man his men that were to come in on the Sabbath, with them that should go out on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada, the priest. 
And the captains over hundreds did the priest, and to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guard stood every man with his weapon in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar and the temple. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. Have you ever wondered where that phrase comes from? God save the king, God save the queen. This right there is where it comes from. But we see a priest by the name of Jehoiada. Jehoiada. And Jehoiada calls the captains and he calls the commanders and he gathers these men together and he gives them a royal charge. But you know, what makes this even more uh, special is that Jehoiada was a priest, but he was not the high priest. That makes me wonder, what's the high priest doing? Right? Why wasn't the high priest the one establishing David's line back to the throne? Why wasn't he the one setting up these guards and crowning the young man as king? Because the high priest chose not to. This could be for a couple of different reasons. It could be he was scared for his life, right? He's afraid, I mean, look at what all Athalia did to the bloodline thus far. He's probably terrified for his life. Could be also that he saw an opportunity to be friendly with the queen ruler of Israel and saw an opportunity to uh, live a peaceful life and maybe have somebody in his corner that he could call on if somebody gave him some trouble. But no matter whether he saw danger or he saw an opportunity, he did not do what he was meant to do. Yet Jehoiada, Jehoiada stepped up and did what was needed to be done. But think about this, if Jehoiada hadn't done this, nobody was going to. This needful thing would have never been done. How many things, how many truths, how many uh, good deeds would go undone if we just chose not to do them? How many people who are in desperate need of help just would not receive the help they needed because we chose not to help them? We may even have very good reasons. We may think we know better. But we must continue to choose to do the right thing. Uh, we see this phrase also in verse 5, that uh, they shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. Could there have been any more uh, noble a job than this? Of all the missions that these soldiers have been, had been given during their time as soldiers, there was never a mission they were given more noble, more honorable, more important than being keepers of the watch of the king's house. They were responsible for safeguarding the king himself, for safeguarding that which was most precious to all of Israel. 
And yet, we have a calling in similar nobility to that of these soldiers. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, this is a, a sort of letter that Paul wrote to his sort of son in the faith, Timothy, as he's embarking on his ministry. He's going to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. That's us. That which Paul gave Timothy, Timothy gave to those faithful men. And those faithful men, they gave it to others also. And those others also, they gave it to the next generation. And it's been handed down from one generation to the next until it has been given to us who sit here this morning. The truths that we safeguard, that we fight for, that we hold dear to this morning are the same things that Paul told Timothy to hold strong to. We have been called, we've been chosen to be soldiers in God's army. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Amen. but against principalities, right? Against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We are called to wrestle against evil, against wrong. We're called to stand against people who live an amoral life. Not an immoral life, an amoral life. Who knows the difference? Anybody know what it means to be immoral? Not any immoral. Yeah. You have no morality about you. You know what amoral means? Choose not to be you? I don't know. I don't. Immoral means to be the opposite of a moral person. It means I'm going to do the opposite of what I know I should do. To be amoral means to not concern yourself with what right or wrong is at all. I don't even consider what's right or what's wrong. Morality isn't even a factor in my life. I just do what I want to do. We have been called to fight for morality, to fight for the truths, for, to fight for, as Paul put it, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. That's the doctrine. Those are the things that he was teaching Timothy that's been handed down to us. And we have been chosen to be a soldier in defending his truth. Keepers of the watch of the king's house. That's what we are. But then also we see this very interesting thing. Did you notice where it said the priests give King David's spears and shields to these soldiers? They were fighting a good fight. We just talked about that. But they were fighting a good fight with the same weapons as David himself. Wow. Can you imagine? Holding a spear 
that David once fought with. You imagine it would be like uh, holding the slingshot, wouldn't it? And say, this is the slingshot he slew Goliath with. It would be like holding the sword that he slew so many Philistines with. These relics, these things that reminded them so much of a king they once had that was so righteous, that had a heart after God, that loved the Lord. Imperfect, but I mean, compared to all the other kings they've been dealing with, closer than anybody else has ever gotten. And in the same way, we too fight a good fight and with the same weaponry as the ancient fathers of our faith. You ever... A lot of times, people will have a Bible in their home that they don't necessarily use. And if you look at it, it seems as though it's been quite used. It's quite old. And someone's cared for it a lot. It's been my uh, privilege to do a couple of funerals now. And a lot of times, there's a Bible somewhere that person used. And it's given to a specific member of the family, and they keep it somewhere special. Right? They put it up somewhere. Sometimes maybe if they're feeling nostalgic, they might get that Bible down and, and sort of go through it and look at the marks and the notes and the things that they left in the margins and so forth. And you look at that thing and you say, wow, this is almost like holding the weapon they use to fight their spiritual battles. And it means a lot when it's somebody you know that fought the spiritual fight really well. And holding that is like it's holding their spiritual weapon in your hand and it just means something to you. Well, what we hold in our hand when we hold the Bible this morning is the same weapon that's been used in spiritual warfare for generations. For thousands of years, Christians have used this weapon alone to wrestle against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world. What we hold in our hand this morning is the same kind of power that men used when they were fighting evil. It's the same weaponry that Paul used when he was fighting against the Roman government, when he was fighting against the, the Jewish hierarchy. It's the same weaponry that was used when the true underground church was being pursued and massacred by the Catholic pretenders. It's the same Bible that's been used, the same weaponry that's been used to fight real evil for thousands of years. And it's the same weaponry we hold in our hand this morning. And it's no less special than those spears and those shields that were placed into the hands of the guards of the king's house. And then the moment comes. They put the crown upon him. He's being officially recognized as the true king of Judah. But the whole purpose of these warriors standing guard at the temple was so the rightful king could be officially crowned. Right? These men weren't standing guard for six years. They were just standing guard over the crowning ceremony.
they were meant to preserve that which was precious to Israel and to God. Because this was the last living uh, relative of David. Let me tell you why it's so important that David's bloodline continues. It's not just about having one of David's descendants on the throne. But it was through the bloodline of David that Christ would be born. And the slaughtering of this house was an attempt by Satan to destroy Jesus before he could ever be born. And we see this assault on the bloodline of Christ many times throughout the Old Testament. We too have been summoned by God to stand and fight in order to preserve His truth, which becomes precious to us. But only as it provides for us things that we need, like peace, encouragement, comfort, instruction, and hope as our daily needs reveal themselves. Because you won't need the same thing every day. One morning you wake up, you're going to need some peace, you're going to need some hope. Maybe you wake up another morning and you need some encouragement. Maybe you wake up one day and you need some instruction. You're confused or you've got a decision to make and you don't know what to do. And the Word of God can provide you instruction. But the more that we allow the, the Word of the Lord to provide for us as our daily need presents itself, the more precious it becomes to us. And the more we're willing to fight for it. A real soldier doesn't go out looking for a fight though, but is prepared for one when it comes knocking on his door. I would encourage all the members of Faith Pounders Church, don't go out looking for fights, but be ready if one comes knocking on your door. Then we see secondly this morning is placing the proper king upon his throne. And this is where our story has a bit of an uptick. It says in verse 12, and he brought forth, uh, I'm sorry, verse, I've wrote the wrong thing down, verse 13. And when Athalia heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, behold, the manor, uh, the king stood by the pillar as the manor was, and the prince and the princes and the trumpeters by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athalia rent her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth, or, yeah, him that followeth her, kill with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid hands on her, and she went by the way which the horses came into the king's house. And there was she slain. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and break it down. His altars and his images break they in pieces thoroughly. 
and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took rulers over hundreds and captains and the guard and all the people of the land, and they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard of the king's house. And he sat upon the throne of the kings. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was in quiet. And they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. Seven years old was, Jeho was Jehoash when he began to reign. So basically what happened was, if you didn't quite catch it, she came in and found them crowning him. And they were guarding the house. And because she continued to pursue entering in there and trying to kill him, they captured her. They pursued her, she wouldn't leave, they captured her and they took her into uh, basically the dungeon. But we see that the people of the land were rejoicing. This was a happy day, right? This was a really great day for Israel. The intended king is about to be crowned. And while everybody else is rejoicing, Athalia is renting her clothes and crying treason. She, isn't that, isn't that interesting? That she would cry treason after she's the one that murdered David's whole line. And yet they're the ones guilty of treason. It is amazing how people will judge themselves based off their intentions and everybody else off of their actions. Well, you did this and you did that. Well, that's true, I did that. But what I was trying to do or, you know, what I meant by that was, but that's not what you meant. That's what you said. We judge people based off their actions and ourselves off of our intentions. And also, she's mourning while everybody else is rejoicing. What makes some people rejoice will make other, people's, will make other people angry. There will always be, there will always be those that seek for us to fail. They will rage at your victories. But we must realize that the wrath of such evil-minded people just simply means that we're doing something right. If people so capable of cruelty are in an upheaval about something we're doing, we must be doing something right. We don't need to, like I said before, go out of our way to irritate somebody, but if just the natural course of doing the right thing makes somebody upset, we just need to be glad that we've made somebody upset by doing the right thing. We need to put the Lord first. We need to put doing the right thing first. And not be so concerned with how popular it is. Like Joshua said, as he's winding up his ministry, and he says, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. He'd been giving them a whole lecture on 
the history of their terrible decisions. And he's encouraging them to drive the inhabitants out of the land. Just because I'm fixing to pass away, don't stop fighting the good fight. Do not serve this Baal. Do not give in to their idolatry. Serve the one true God. Obey him with your whole heart. And he comes to the end of it. And in a defeated manner, he says, nevertheless, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, no matter what else happens, no matter who else comes in, we're going to do the right thing. Let it be said of this church that no matter what happens to us, we will continue to do the right thing. Notice also, they made it important that she should not be slain in the house of the Lord. That was important. Also that she was only pursued after she came in in pursuit of the king. And even after she came into the temple and cried treason and rent her clothes and came after the king and it was chased out, they still made it Sure, you do not slay her in the house of the Lord. The house of God is a sacred place. And it ought to be held in the highest regard. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 says, These things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. What he's saying here is, these things I'm writing unto you, hoping that shortly I can visit you and physically remind you in person of the things I'm writing to you. But if I tarry longer than I mean to, or... You know, and am providentially hindered and am slain before I'm able to revisit you. I'm writing these things so that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church. Right? That's what he's saying here. He's saying that we should hold the house of God in high regard. That it ought to be a sacred place. It ought to be a holy place. It ought to be a special place. A place very spiritual, what the rest of the world might call magical, a very magical place, full of wonder and amazement, with nothing more than a Bible in our laps. And the house of the Lord is a place that ought to be revered and respected like it was in our story. And then it says, She went by the way which the horses came into the king's house, if she had just fled. If she had just left, if she didn't go into the temple, cry treason, rent her clothes, cause trouble for everybody, if she'd have seen that her plans had been foiled and the evil that she had done up to that point was lost and she just went on her way, accepted her losses and attempted to live a life of peace, then she might not have needed to have been slain. These men only killed her in order to protect the young king. This violence was their last choice. Violence should always be the last choice. 
and we see the new king. And what a king. I, I would like to encourage you to maybe jot down the fact that uh, during the reign of Queen Athalia is when the book of Joel takes place. So with her evil reign in mind, uh, you might go glance through that book and, and read through it and see uh, just exactly what it is that uh, Joel had to say about such things. Yeah. And that's in your chart that I handed you in that list of kings and so forth. In one of those charts, there's a box underneath there that lists the dates of the written prophets. And you can match it up with the kings corresponding to what time in the books these people were actually writing. And we see the last bit, he was seven years old. Seven years old. You guys imagine Jacob, king of Israel. <laughs> Okay. He thinks he is already. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Jacob being elected president of the United States? No. Seven years old? I'm right? And yet we see seven year old Joash, king of Israel, king of Judah, rather. Satan's best attempt at destroying the bloodline of Jesus before Jesus could even be born. And while the devil is strong, God is always stronger. It doesn't mean terrible things won't happen. It just means if we'll endure until the end, we'll arrive at an even better place. So that is our lesson for this morning. 2 Kings 11. Next week, as I said, there will be no lesson because next week will be our Cahoots game. And we're looking forward to that. I'll double up on podcasts this week, uh, get them both on there, and I would encourage you all to brush up a little bit on the lessons, on the Bible stories especially, which is typically where I get my lessons from, or my questions from, is basically from rereading the stories and taking the answers right out of the Bible. So brushing up on those things would certainly benefit you toward our fun little game next week. And we'll be back at 11 o'clock. <laughs>